Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to All Options Considered. I'm Bloomberg Radio host Caroline Hepke. And I'm Tamvir Sandhu, Chief Global Derivative Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's research arm. And on this episode, we're going to be discussing the ECB finally raising interest rates, what it means at a time of rising recession risks, and also what that means for volatility on the yield curve. Later in the programme, I'll be joined by Chris Murphy, Co-Head of Derivative Strategy at Susquehanna. But first, Hanvir, want to delve into what happened with the European Central Bank. Of course, they moved in terms of interest rates. We've been anticipating that for ages. What impact did it have on volatility? Because you say that the real focus is on the front end of the curve. Well, despite the clear guidance of a 25 basis point hike, the ECB moved 50 basis points and was justified by two things. Inflation surprising to the upside and the announcement of the new tool to manage peripheral spreads. I think the end of forward guidance and the uncertainty around the neutral rate keeps vol at a higher level in this cycle. The apex of the vol surface is at the front end, given it's the most sensitive part of the curve to the path of policy rates. Now, figuring out how high this hike cycle goes, ex ante comes with large error bands. And what we saw on Friday with the PMI data was very interesting. It highlighted how growth momentum has slowed. Forward-looking indicators such as new orders highlight how manufacturing is clearly under pressure. And we also have risks around gas supply, as well as levels of the River Rhine, which plays an important part in the transportation of raw materials in Germany. What the data also showed was a large buildup of inventories of finished goods. Now, while that may mean improved lead times for us ordering cars or German kitchen appliances, high inventories of unsold goods and falling new orders point to a very bleak picture ahead. And what we're doing basically is just assessing the probabilities of the different economic outcomes. Mm. And there is increased risk that growth may slow down more than people actually think. Yeah. And of course, this ahead of kind of some, some key European growth figures that we're going to get in the coming days. But then add to that mix, so the big anticipation around the ECB move, and this is the moment that Italian politics decides to blow up as well. Well, chaos in Italian politics and peripheral spread widening is a reoccurring issue for the euro area. The anti-fragmentation tool does look powerful. However, there is vagueness around how it will be activated. We had a research note before the meeting on how the name of the game for that meeting was about controlling spread volatility Mm. rather than the actual level of peripheral spreads. Now, ECB noted it can only be activated to counter unwarranted disorderly market dynamics and can only counter higher yields not warranted by country-specific fundamentals. So the risk premium associated with a general election in Italy clearly doesn't cut it. The tool is not there to address political flare-ups. It's there to essentially dampen spread volatility and contagion. But 
But in that case, take the opposite view. What is the point of having the anti-fragmentation tool in that situation? And in, in a way, the emergency ECB meeting that, that came before was in response to Italian spreads moving quite aggressively. Yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic for the vault market, right? Because on one hand, we get this vagueness about how it's going to be executed. So how does the market interpret this? I think ultimately the pressure on spreads to widen is still there. They're not going to dampen the level of peripheral spreads down to any political scenario. And, and, and therefore spreads continue to widen. Mm. It's all about hanging something there to control the volatility and the contagion. But the other really interesting thing that happened with that ECB meeting is sort of forward guidance effectively being ditched. And again, this is kind of slightly counterintuitive, at least to perhaps to my small brain. Surely this is the point at which we need it most when, you know, markets are under stress. Yeah, they, they've actually thrown the town in with forward guidance and they've become truly data dependent rather than trying to guide the market and then just lose credibility immediately. So economic forecasting is very difficult in the best of times. And the current macro uncertainty means that confident intervals around forecasts are very wide. So the guidance has limited value. Forward guidance has lost value at the Bank of England. We saw Bailey talking about how 50 basis point is not locked in. And anyone who predicts that is doing so based on their own view. So what Bailey was doing there was essentially hedging the Bank of England's credibility. Mm. So what we really need to see for volatility to meaningfully move lower is a handle on the level of neutral rates. The neutral rate is the policy rate level that is neither loose or restrictive. It's inherently uncertain, but signs that the central bank has moved lower on its view of the neutral rate will ultimately move volatility lower. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, thinking 10 years on from Mario Draghi's kind of whatever-it-takes speech, I suppose credibility is, is hugely important still. Absolutely. I mean, it was such an interesting week besides, you know, the record temperatures that we saw in the UK, we had Draghi resigning Yes. at the same time that the ECB hiked for the first time in 11 years and announced a new tool to control peripheral spreads, as well as all the stuff that's going on with gas and the River Rhine, etc. So the macro uncertainty um, is, is highly uncertain. You know, we're assessing the probabilities now. The ECB obviously wants inflation to move to target, if we end up in a scenario where growth materially moves lower and inflation stays high, you know, stagflationary outlook, yeah. it's going to be extremely difficult for the ECB. Well, then, in that case, a kind of peripheral thought, if you would, on what you make of volatility in crypto markets. I mean, this is a bit it's left field. You know, we, we, we talked a lot about the kind of the mainstays of, of markets for Europe. But yeah, a word on crypto that's still what trading kind of twenty twenty two thousand dollars for Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah, crypto to me is like a chemistry experiment. <laughs> okay, why? You know, vol should be expected, right, as yeah. crypto ventures along this adoption curve into the unknown. And the inherent vol of this market 
given that it's in the early adoption phase, like we saw with internet stock, like Amazon, uh, means that extreme drawdowns have to be expected for the potential return. Now, it's had a good bounce recently. You know, we've had a flush out of excess speculative demand. And we've seen this story thousands of times through history. And having leveraged exposure to an asset that has a vol of 80 is very dangerous. Now, to put it in perspective, uh, S&P 500 has a vol historically of 12, and Bitcoin has a vol of 80. Bitcoin has 13 times more vol than emerging markets FX. Wow. It has seven times more vol than gold. So you have to put that in your framework if you're trading Bitcoin or crypto. And the key part is sizing exposure. Yeah, and and yet it's, you know, it's talked about, you know, so much more often in some ways than investing in traditional stocks or bonds for people's pensions. You know, there's there's huge interest in crypto, despite the, almost despite the vol. You know, you have different layers of crypto investors. Mm, sure. So the first layer is people who hold onto these coins and they they are long-term players they believe in crypto they they don't sell out and Mm. then you've got the speculative layer who may be leveraging and then you have these huge drawdowns and they get completely wiped out so this excess speculative demand you know we've seen throughout history where people just go into crypto they don't really understand it they're Mm. seeing the price go exponential they're leveraging up and then when the market goes against them they're completely wiped out so it's all about sizing your exposure given the level of volatility in that market yeah well just a last thought then um in our kind of monthly thinking about volatility um this is usually a kind of quiet time for certainly stock investors in Europe. Do you think that that's going to hold true for Vol, you know, in the next few weeks, let's say? And we've got a Fed meeting, we've got earnings season, we've got lots of political risk. And as you mentioned, you know, the gas issue with Russia is is bubbling in the background. I think for European stocks, you know, the gas issue is a bigger concern than forward guidance. Mm. So if we look at the DAX index, it's a highly internationally exposed index with less than 20% of revenues coming from Germany. The DAX is highly sensitive to energy, it's highly sensitive to global trade and the macro environment. So we've seen signs in the DAX index where the vol level is persisting at higher levels than say the S&P 500 Mm -hmm. in terms of some of the dynamics we look at, such as the skew, which is the vol related to the market falling relative to the market rallying, the DAX skew has actually been quite slow to fall, whereas the S&P 500 skew has pretty much dived down to average levels. I think a lot of that is to do with the asymmetric exposure of gas and the impact it will have on Europe. Now, that's just one macro theme. There's so many macro themes out there that we're not going to have any summer lull. Good thing we're doing the podcast, Tanvir. Good stuff. Okay, well, thanks so much uh, for explaining all of that. I know you've got a guest that's going to join us uh, in just a moment. This is Bloomberg. 
hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us on this month's All Options Considered podcast. Happy to be here. Uh, definitely a lot of things to talk about in options world these days, so uh, let's have some fun. So we've seen equity vol actually underperform this year, which brings into question why pay for vol. And we look at the one-month realized vol of the S&P 500. It's largely persisted above 30 since May, and it's now back down to 21. But the VIX has been much less reactive to recent market declines. If we look at long daily vol, it's about 28, which implies that you need about 1.8% move per day to get a payoff. And also, if we look at the S&P 500 skew, it stands out given that it's indicating vol won't rise quickly if the equity uh, sell-off extends. So what do you make of all this, Chris? Yeah, there's, that's, a, that's one of the major questions that we have been fielding uh, recently from, um, from our clients. You know, you touched on the VIX being a little bit re- less reactive. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that, in my opinion. Um, first of all, you touched on the skew. So when you have lower skew in the S&P, uh, you're going to see less reactive moves in the VIX for a given move in the, um, so lower skew in the S&P options. You're going to see a less reactive um, move in the VIX for a given price change in the S&P. So that's, that's you know, having a factor. Um, another factor is, you know, after COVID in 2020, um, a lot of the heavy positioning in the VIX um, kind of went away. It's been slowly rebuilding, um, but not to the size that it was beforehand. So that's also going to have a, a, a pretty decent impact on um, how much covering or how much uh, movement, you know, is exacerbated in the VIX from the options positions. Uh, and you can kind of see that a little bit in um, a lot of people look at the VIX. That is the volatility measurement of the VIX. Um, and that has come in a lot as well um, compared to um, where it had been um, right after COVID. So those are a lot of factors. And you also just touched on the S&P. It's been more of a kind of like a linear repricing of risk, repricing of, um, of equities, um, you know, as the Fed becomes more active and interest rates move uh, higher. Um, but it's been less of a, um, you know, tail risk type event. Um, right. We actually haven't had a three standard deviation move in the S&P uh, in over two years. Uh, so, you know, you'd expect to see at least one a year on average. Um, so that's another reason why we're not really seeing as much of a bid to the tails. And this is a problem for convexity pricing, right? If you have a slow grinding market, um, you don't get paid owning the tails. So in terms of you know, tail pricing or convexity pricing, we saw it average at higher levels compared to pre-COVID, uh, largely a function of the macro uncertainty and the diminished vol supply. And we can see that through just looking at the spread between VIX and one month at the money implied vol. So measures of convexity are falling in recent months. And essentially what convexity needs is to see greater realized vol or sort of a big moment that realizes a, a payout. And you touched on uh, the vol of vol. Just unpacking that somewhat, the vol of vol benefits option structures with exposure to the wings. And we actually saw vol of vol or vol of the VIX take out the pandemic floor of 100. So how do you see this, uh, you know, this convexity playing out, Chris? 
Well, okay, so a couple things there. Uh, first off, um, something that's gotten a lot of traction is uh, comparing the S&P performance to um, the S&P with a downside 5% put protection. That's the PPUT index. Uh, and if you were to pull that up, um, it you know you would expect that the stock market, maybe it's down 18% or something at this point, the S&P 500 uh, off the highs. You'd expect a S&P with a 5% downside put protection to be a pretty good outperformer. And the fact is it's not. Um, so that, that, that downside kind of tail protection is just not working right now. And, and when you want to compare, um, and I'm not really sure what the name is for this sell-off right now, but the, uh, you know, maybe the Fed waking up sell-off or the, um, you know, the, the, the quantitative tightening sell-off, whatever it is, it's been um, more of a grind, like we said. And COVID came out of nowhere. That was a huge surprise, and that was a real tail risk. This year hasn't really been a tail risk, and I think that's why you're not seeing uh, the tails know, really paying off that much. And then when you circle back to the VIX, I would note that um, you know, current levels, 90-ish, wherever it is right now, um, that's kind of around the average level that you did see from 2015 uh, up until 2019 before COVID. So the VIX, while it seems low, if you're looking at, um, you know, going back two years or three years, uh, if you look longer term, it's not, you know, quite as low. And it's, it could actually be more of a sign of um, a bit of a return to normal. We've got used to seeing a mean reversion of vol, right, in recent years, uh, particularly super fast uh, mean reversion episodes where central banks had room to respond. If we think about credit risks, which can drive vol to stay at elevated levels and upside inflation risks, which may mean that credit spreads can widen further before the Fed blinks, how do you see this evolving in terms of default rates versus equity vol? Well, I mean, the main takeaway is the Fed is not our friend right now. And when we go back and we look at how quickly um, the sell-offs were bought, the buy, the dip, you know, you had, you know, one classic capitulation indicator that everyone would always look for is, you know, when the VIX term structure inverts, so when the near term or the spot VIX goes up above the second or third month future, you know, that's a sign that all the the risk and the, um, you know, and the panic is being priced into the very near term, and it's a good sign that you could potentially buy the dip here. Uh, and that obviously worked uh, if you backtest that for, for a decade. Um, but we all, what we also had over the past decade was a very accommodative Fed. Um, and there were a lot of other capitulation indicators, put call ratio, things like that, that, that we would look at, and they would be very easy to point to and say, okay, uh, this signal has gone off, so now we're going to buy... Um, by the market uh, and by the dip, uh, but now we don't have the Fed um, as our friend, and that's certainly going to read through to uh, potential uh, higher rates of default and things like that. And and when you mention default, and we talk about how we've been discussing, you know, the lack of a um, you know convex type move, uh, how the sell-offs have all been, you know, very linear, things like that. Um, when something more surprising out of the blue, like an increase in defaults start to happen, and then there's some knock-off effects there. You know, maybe that's when you finally do get your, um, you know, your tail-type move, your convex-type move, and and there are some out there that are, you know, some uh, investors out there and traders out there that are waiting for that um, the real tail move, um, right. the real surprise move to finally point to the, to a bottom, uh, and maybe it's the lack of uh, Fed help leading to. Um, some surprise defaults that finally gets us there. 
I mean, we've seen the market calm down somewhat in recent days. We could end up in a plausible scenario where you know the market is effectively stuck in a range for some time. So, what kind of ideas are you looking at around that scenario? One um, one trade I love right now. It, it would be setting up. Um, you know, maybe you've already kind of got your you know your max exposure. You don't want to take on any more downside risk, but you do think that these are high quality stocks that should be rebounding here. Um, I take my long position and then I add on what we call a one by two call spread. So what that's going to do is you buy a call um, on that stock that's kind of around where the stock is trading now, maybe a little bit higher, uh, and then you finance it with uh, two calls that are higher. So one trade, I don't have the strikes in front of me, though it stuck out to me about two weeks ago uh, was in Starbucks where um, you know, Starbucks is down on the year, which is a lot of stocks are down on the year. Uh, and an investor came in and bought a Starbucks call that's kind of near the money. And then they sold two that would represent basically Starbucks um, climbing back to being flat on the year. So flat for 2022. Right. And that kind of a structure, you know, if you're thinking, well, stocks should rebound from here. So much bad news is priced in. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of other reasons you can point to, uh, particularly if it's your favorite stock, rebounding here. But it's hard to see an extreme upside scenario. You know, you can put a one by two call spread on top of your long position. It's going to add exposure to, you know, moderate upside, maybe getting back to unchanged on the year. It's not going to increase your downside risk because you're not adding any more risk on the downside. Um, and as long as you don't see a real catalyst for, you know, an explosion of higher, new all-time highs, you know, um, up, you know, 10, 20% or whatever in the near term, that's going to help you um, – Increase your exposure, and then also kind of if, you're, if you have that thesis that you know if we if we start to rally, um, energy starts to rally, you know oil prices, etc. Everything starts to move back higher. The Fed might get a little bit more aggressive, and that's going to blunt the upside a little bit. So that's a great strategy, I think, for um, you know adding to your favorite positions here. So you're you're talking essentially about a limited upside option strategy in an environment where central banks that are catching up to the curve and forward guidance has essentially gone out the window. Let, let's talk about rates volume. We've seen the, the move index versus the VIX widen out. You know, what do you make of all of that and where do you see it going? Well, you know, so if you were to look back earlier um, this month, that spread had gotten, um, you know, incredibly wide. And what has happened just recently is the move index is starting to come in. But um, in my opinion, you know, everyone's kind of pointing towards the spread between those two as a sign that maybe the VIX should be, be moving higher. But I would put the VIX aside and I would just look at the move index. And when you have a situation where on every CPI number, all of a sudden we go from 100% chance of a 75 basis hike at the next, you know, and then three hours later we're up at 75% chance of 100 100 basis point hike, um, and then the next day we're back down. I mean, the, the near-term rate expectations with so many different data points coming out and, and, and really unsure about when inflation is finally going to roll over, that's why the move index is so high. Um, and in some ways, um, I think the S&P has priced in a lot of that uncertainty and, has, and has, um, also has the VIX. Um, so I don't necessarily think that the VIX needs to catch up or catch higher to the move index. I think the move index is so elevated because 
Uh, that's the very near-term U.S. Treasury rate volatility. Um, it's just because there's a lot of uncertainty um, over right. the Fed's path right now. Um, but that's coming in a lot. It's coming in a lot recently. And as if you know, if we start to see inflation uh, truly roll over, like you know, a couple data points in a row, um, yeah. you know, maybe that does continue to come in. The move index, just to unpack this, is essentially a weighted average of one month fall across the yield curve, across two, five, tens, and thirties. A lot of that vol is concentrated in the front end or rates that are most sensitive to central bank policy rates. Part of it is also due to other issues of liquidity. When option traders hedge their risk using uh, swaps, for example, the liquidity in that market has deteriorated and therefore the cost of hedging increases, which will be reflected in higher vol. But overall, it really is depicting the the wide range of outcomes out there in terms of the macro environment. In terms of going back to convexity, do you see sort of the fragility in the market actually increasing over time and we remain stuck in this cycle? So, you know, we get to the point where, say, the central banks turn dovish or give us a, more of a clear indication of where neutral is, and then we go back to this whole cycle of creating another Minsky movement. Do you see the fragility increasing over time because of this you know i'm more aligned with the um with you know the s p um and, you know equity markets in general have been pretty dramatically you know repriced um sentiment positioning is 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 so sour that you know i'm i'm kind of agreeing with this low skew that we're seeing in a lot of these macro products for the time being i mean certainly over time you know, when, when this passes and, and everyone starts to build up risks again and positioning gets uh, stretched and overweight and things like that, um, you know, the downside tail comes back. And I think that that, that risk um, does come back. But, but for right now, you know, I'm more of, of the thought of a muddle through, you know, 18 months, um, pl- you know, bouncing back and forth alongside this range, you know, not really a lot of great alternatives to, um, to equities when they are at the bottom of, of the current range. Um, so that, you know, that, that's, that's what I would, that's what I would be more likely to, to lean towards. Getting into the, the recent banks we've seen in the stock market, how do you relate that to what we saw last year with the meme stocks? And, you know, stocks where there's a high level of short interest. We've seen a pretty notable shift in the options focus. And the best way to look at that would be, you know, you know each month there's an options expiration. And you look at the uh, open positions um, in the index and ETF products. And then the open positions um, on the equity or single stock products. And what we were seeing in 2021 was so much of the volume and open interest was being driven by the single stock names. Um, whether it was the meme stocks that got a lot of focus or, you know, the Apples and Teslas and Amazons of the world that also got a lot, a lot of options focus. So that was in 2021 and less of a focus on the index and ETF products, a little bit less of a focus on the macro. It was all about what was the hot stock in 2021 and which one are we going to follow? Uh, now we fast forward to this year, uh, that's flipped pretty dramatically. So you're looking at, you know, each successive expiration that we analyze, you know, let's just talk about, um, in June, uh, we saw a pretty notable downtick in open positions on the single stock level and a pretty notable uptick in open positions on the ETF um, and index level. 
And that's just a pretty obvious read-through that um, that meme stock mania has kind of died out. Uh, a lot of that was, you know, you know, people were speculating it was retail trading. That's died out as well. What does not really surprise you when the stock market's down 15 20% over the course of a year, you see a little bit less of that trading. Uh, and then you see a lot more focus on the, the macro right now. Everything's about, you know, what's Russia doing? What's, Fed, what's the Fed doing? What's inflation doing? That's the major focus. You're not seeing articles about, um, you know, GameStop and, and um, AMC and things like that. So that focus has shifted uh, pretty dramatically. Um, you know, we are starting to see maybe just even in this recent rebound that we've seen right here, uh, some new kind of heavily shorted type names being targeted, but that's in very early stages. In terms of liquidity, I mean, what are you seeing sort of flow-wise? The liquidity across pretty much all markets has been particularly poor. Market depth's been very low. So what are you, what are you seeing on your side? You're certainly seeing that. I agree. Um, in general, spreads um, are a little bit wider. Markets are a little bit thinner. Now, you're always going to expect to see that when volatility is high. You know, always a good comparison is to go back to 2017 when the VIX was in single digits. I mean, the markets were so thick, everything was so liquid, nothing was really moving. You know, when yeah. the VIX is three times as high or four times as high, you would think in theory screen uh, markets would be, you know, three times thinner and, and three times wider. And that's just a natural reaction. Uh, so you are seeing more slippage. Um, you know, I work on an institutional um, sales trading desk you know, Tuscohana that commits a lot of capital. So I'm not really seeing the, um, the markets thin out here. Uh, but if you're just looking at screen markets, you're trading with the screens, things like that, I think you're clearly going to notice it. So just to finish up, let's go back into the skew. And when we talk about the skew, we're looking at the difference between implied volatility on puts versus calls. What are you seeing in terms of the skew on single stock names, we've seen a skew on the S&P 500 decline quite dramatically, and it's indicating a lower level of implied vol if the market continues to sell off. What are you seeing on the single stock side? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's very interesting to note, you know, a low skew on the index level. And in a lot of situations, you're seeing a high skew on the single stock level. So the market's kind of telling you that in aggregate, a lot of the downside tail has been taken out of the broader market. But given all the uncertainties out there, currency risk, you know, a slowdown in the economy, things like that, uh, each individual company's execution is a little bit more under, under the radar. So you're seeing much higher skew than you normally see on a lot of individual companies. Um, you, know, you know, Apple will be one example. Skew is on the higher end, and you might... Um, you might love Apple, and you might say, all right, well, it's, it's sold off a fair amount, especially for Apple. It's down 14% this year. Um, I'd love to buy some Apple down another 5 or 10%. Uh, and I'm noticing how high that the skew is. So like you said, the downside puts are elevated compared to uh, where they normally trade in relationship to the upside call. So right. I'm willing to buy Apple on another sell-off. Uh, I'm getting some pretty good premium for those downside puts compared to the upside calls. Why don't I sell a downside put because I'm willing to buy the stock down 5 or 10% uh, to help finance or finance buying an upside call up, you know, 5% or, or whatever, or 10%. And then you're in a situation where, um, you know, if Apple doesn't sell off anymore and you love the stock and it starts to rebound, well, you have exposure to the upside. Um, and if it does sell off and you are happy to buy it on the, on the dip, then you get to um, 
fulfill that and buy it on a move lower. Um, so, you know, that setup in the single stocks is going to allow you to, um, you know, do a strategy like that um, that fits your thesis. And it's just kind of interesting to note that um, it's high in a lot of these individual names, but not high on the index level. All right. Well, great to have you on, Chris, and we should do this again. I would anytime. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Thanks.